Welcome to Call and Character, a podcast for not-so-casual conversation about calling, culture, and other things that make for lives worth living. My name is Davey Henriksen, and I teach at Valparaiso University and serve as director of the Institute for Leadership and Service, the sponsor of this podcast. I'm especially excited to share this 12th episode, our final of the 2020 season. I'm joined by Makoto Fujimura, one of my favorite artists and writers. We'll be discussing the relationship between art, beauty, faith, lament, and hope, all themes drawn from his newly released book, Art and Faith, published by Yale University Press. This conversation seemed like a fitting way to end this season of Call and Character. Thanks to all of you for listening and sharing the podcast with others. It's been a true delight to hear from so many of you. We're gearing up for season two, beginning in late January, and we already have some truly amazing guests lined up. And now to the conversation. The British poet Edward Thomas once wrote an exquisite little poem in which he described a simple towering plume of smoke rising from a train as so fair it touched the roar with silence. In my own encounters with the art of Makoto Fujimura, our guest today, I've been overwhelmed too by a silence so deep it roars and arrests the gaze of anyone who pays it attention. But this is what beauty does. It holds a fragile power to generate meaning and recognition it resists commodification and crass pragmatism and invites those who behold it to stop and linger a while. Reading Fujimura's new book, I was reminded often of the story in the Gospels about the woman who came to Jesus with an alabaster jar and poured expensive perfume on his feet to the displeasure of the disciples. What the woman at Bethany did made no economic or earthly sense. It was an excessive act with no instrumental value. But she saw Jesus as her beloved and knew that he was worth the offering. She took the perfume, itself a finite good, and made it something of infinite value. As the art and writing of Fujimura suggests, these sorts of acts ought to arrest our attention so that we can model their beauty in our own lives and callings. Makoto Fujimura's biography is too replete with honors to do it justice. He is an award-winning artist whose deliberate, refractive, slow art has been described by David Brooks of the New York Times as a small rebellion against the quickening of time. His art has been featured widely in galleries and museums around the world, in notable collections including the Museum of Contemporary Art in Tokyo and the Huntington Library. From 2003 to 2009, he was a presidential appointee to the National Council on the Arts and served as an international advocate for the arts, speaking with decision makers and advising governmental policies. His books, Refractions, and Culture Care reflect his work on arts advocacy during that time. And his new book, Art and Faith, A Theology of Making, just recently published by Yale University Press. So Mako, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you today. So I'm gonna jump right in with a question kind of about the main, I don't know if I wanna call it an argument, but the theme, the motif of the book, which has to do with beauty's abundance, its effulgence, we could even say. Yeah. And in, in a culture and a, certainly a political community in which everything seems to be a zero-sum game, a fight for power or privilege in a world of scarcity, how would you say beauty provides an alternate way of living well? Yeah, that captures the thesis very well. Um, the, uh, the part of the thesis of my book uh, was to argue for uh, restoration of this vision of God as God of abundance and um, the one that spoke the Sermon on the Mount uh, to to people who were very much fear-driven and scarcity-minded. Um, uh, they had to be to live in um, first century uh, you know, Palestine uh, desert with so many um, contested powers uh, fighting over their turf. Um, and, and yeah, Jesus spoke about the abundance of creation and uh, invoked the new creation at the same time and invited people uh, to, to a banquet. Uh, and, and so 
the gospel seems to me is is a message of abundance and yet we have made it into um, an argument of Darwinian struggle um, and that's that's the first observation I that I will make but that's obviously related to my role as an artist um, and art always flows out of abundance and whether the artist is aware of that or not is uh, a different question. Um, even if you're not aware, um, you're still creating something um, in in the midst of your battle with um, this zero-sum game that is being played in front of you, and, and you're offering art that is um, beautiful or um, that is um, something that goes beyond pragmatism to um, to people who may or may not be ready for it, you know. And, uh, and, and so when I think about what Jesus said and has done, um, I relate that to what artists are doing in, in their lives. Um, and I, as I have been an artist um, all my life, you know, I have lived that principle of um, assuming that there is abundance in a universe that I can tap into, even though what I was experiencing was less than that. So this book, I'm assuming, was probably written before the pandemic hit us, but it's being published in the midst of a context in which we've all been forced into isolation. And it's also had the effect, of course, of closing museums, canceling orchestra seasons. It's made dining out at nice restaurants all but impossible. So in a, in a real way, things that have always delighted us have now been forbidden. So I was wondering, how has this year of isolation and austerity affected the way you think about your art or the place of beauty in our lives? Yeah, every day passes and we see the impact um, more deeply of the shutdown and this pandemic and the suffering that is going on. Um, when Yale uh, Press, you know, initially set the date, um, it was um, going to be released a bit earlier, but then um, I'm glad they pushed it back. In fact, it's, it's not out until January 5th is the official date, but uh, in, in our days of Amazon, you, you can get um, your copy today and uh, and the way they have been um, reporting to me Yale Press has said that it's already on its third printing because people are responding to the message of hope um, you know I call it theology of making but it's also could be called theology of new creation and that people need a message that um, invokes the new um, in in the and and I I could have written a chapter on how artists are able to create something um, despite what they see, despite what they're experiencing, the scarcity that is around them, and many great masterpieces of art has come out of um, the Black Plague, you know, that lasted three or four generations in Europe, and and yet we see works of Shakespeare and Fire Angelico and um, these artists who not only created during uh, their shutdown, um, but also created new ways of doing art, uh, as in the case of Shakespeare. So, you know, that's that's there. And I'm not saying that everything we do should be, should aspire to do be, you know, Shakespearean, but... But in, in, in another sense, you know, we have to realize that all art um, flows out of trauma in some way. And um, if you removed uh, artworks and literature that came out of, uh, especially wartime trauma, you know, you, you lose 80, 90% of all great literature. Um, you would not have Hemingway, J.D. Salinger, who was traumatized in front lines. Um, you would not have Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, Narnia Chronicles, the Pevenji children uh, are exiled from London because of the war and their journey into the wardrobe um, was in a sense a way to cope with their uh, isolation, their loneliness and their quarantine as it were. 
Um, so the, the, these things are very much part of our history. And, and I think, um, you know, part of, I think, yes, I, I, did, I didn't intend this to be the message of this book. I didn't know that the pandemic would be happening uh, when I wrote these passages. But, um, but you, since I have gone through uh, as a ground zero resident at, uh, in New York City, after 9-11, my children grew up as ground zero children, and uh, here we are. We are about to face our 20th anniversary um, with so many of the traumas still lingering. And, um, you know, I think that experience uh, coupled with my role as an artist, my role as a, a leader, um, as a thinker, um, all those things caught us into thinking about uh, a kind of theology that can withstand um, tremendous trauma and darkness and ground zero conditions. And um, so I, I have told um, many people that, you know, what I learned after 9-11 uh, can really help because, you know, I'm a survivor, but everybody is going to be survivor after 2020. And um, that reality, the psyche and, and the psychological journey that we will be on um, way after this is considered to be over, um, will linger on and, and we can ignore that or run away from that. But, but I, I think it's actually an opportunity for us to recalibrate and slow down and really think about our what we what matters to us the most and you know how we might um, nurture and uh, create uh, and make uh, out of the fractures so the the these uh, this book uh, really is um, uh, a pathway into that journey i'm really struck by the line you you said a few minutes ago about great art emerging out of trauma and it made me think about, I think, what is one of the, the most important dialectics of this book and perhaps even of your, your art, which is this walking back and forth between lament and hope. Mm. And with the theology of new creation, which you say could be your alternate subtitle, I guess my question is, is there a place for art in the new creation? Or must it always be something that's a longing for something better? Can you create great works of art from a place of ultimate peace or rest or tranquility? Yeah, great questions. And um, uh, first of all, I try to reset what it means to uh, be an artist <laughs> and and what art is in the book. I make the statement throughout that I, you know one of the critical things about um, God of the Bible is that God stands outside of time and space and does not need us. Um, that there is a profound reality of um, God's existence being self-sufficient and all-sufficient and you know and that that that's and yet God created because God is love and God loves exuberant <laughs> beauty and God seeks after justice and loves those who despite their Darwinian struggles to just survive every day they are willing to give mercy to those who do not deserve that or can't not repay that um that it's upside down um from what is you know normative and what we think is a necessary way of the world and you know cultural wars is built on this fundamental belief that unless we do something um, you know, it's, uh, it's up to us um, to fix the world. But, you know, I read the scripture passages and I read, obviously, as an artist, and I, I, I see this creator who, who, who is an artist, who is the artist, who is more than what I can ever do, obviously, uh, created something out of nothing and, and, and continues to create through us. 
And so art is fundamentally something that we make in, in response to that. And we are making things uh, in response to God's creation and God's creative heart. And, and many of us don't realize that's what we're doing. But, but when that is happening in front of us, when we make, God shows up. And therefore, the making and the fruit of making is how we are to measure our lives and, and how we can um, see the Holy Spirit's um, journey uh, in and through us and, and for us. Um, and so art is fundamentally uh, what this creator God, artist, the artist, the only artist, <laughs> is inviting us to be part of. And when we respond and when we name the animals and we uh, respond um, with beauty and justice and mercy, we end up creating the new creation. And it, it, it's so amazing that God may wait until we act to accomplish that. Um, this, this is an incredible <laughs> promise that you know, I find throughout scriptures and I, I, I you know, it's, it's, it's so vast and um, exquisite that we, we, we doubt that it can be true because it's too good to be true. But that's the gospel and um, the entirety of the Bible uh, from Genesis to Revelation is full of these promises, um, promises of the new. Uh, yes, there's devastation and judgment, but they are only for sanctification. And at the end of the day, um, if we can uh, turn to this creator God with, of course, humility and repentance, but the turn, turning to this God um, as an act of uh, turning toward um beauty and truth and justice and and hope is is going to lead us into uh, um, a role of being a co-creator uh, invited into that that's that incredible impossible status that we certainly don't deserve but this is what uh, God has called us to be uh, in Christ we're a new creation and that new creation is already embedded in us. Um, and um, anytime we create, anytime we speak or touch, um, it's part of already the new creation. You've been writing about the theological sources for your, your life's work, your art for, for decades, but you also acknowledge uh, early on in, in this current book that many people of faith might be a little skeptical <laughs> about the relationship between religion and art. So I want to just a quick quote from the first chapter. You write, imagination like art has often been seen as suspect by some Christians who perceive the art world as an assault upon traditional values. These expectations of art are largely driven by fear that art will lead us away from truth into an anarchic freedom of expression. So how would you go about convincing a, a traditional Christian or really any person of faith that the imagination is, is not a threat and perhaps is even essential to their pursuit of moral or spiritual truth? Yeah, so whenever the Bible speaks of our hearts or our heart, um, my uh, dear colleague, um, Dr. Ellen Davis of Duke Seminary has said um, as a Hebrew, Hebrew scholar that, that the word that is translated in the Bible for uh, heart is um, imagination. <laughs> it's, that's the closest word in English language for um, both uh, Hebrew word and, and the Greek word for um, our hearts. And, and so the, when we talk about sanctification of our hearts, toward the kingdom of God, uh, to be able to see God clearly. Um, we're talking about sanctification of our imagination. Now, as I note, uh, you know, we use the word imagination as a 
somewhat of a, with suspicion saying that well you know if you're thinking that you're fantasizing you're imagining things you know it's not real um, so there's a lot of cultural baggage here uh, that we have to overcome but uh, christian church has always been uh, the heart of cultural imagination we have always created into the world and the world has flocked to our churches because we what we have built was beautiful and what we have built is extravagant <laughs> and and so you know we examine ourselves in 21st century early 21st century and to see what is the fruit of the church um and how how does a skeptic see us you know and um i must say that i argue in the book that it is really the opposite of what we want the world to see you know um we are taught at least individually that um the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness gentleness goodness faithfulness and and self-control and Instead of love, we have hatred. We have projected hatred as a church. Instead of peace, we have waged war. You know, instead of joy, we seem to be rather um, anxious and fearful and so forth. So, so the fruit of the Spirit may be manifest in individuals um, because of all the discipleship programs that we have. Maybe, but it's not manifest in culture. And it's not manifest in the culture of the church, even if we examine ourselves. So there's something wrong here um, of how the Christians believe uh, that we are, the we are followers of Christ and in Christ we're a new creation. Where is that new creation? And I, I really argue that it's, yes, it's through imagining and making. It's through the artists that we often see the fruit um, but collectively, it's through uh, ministries of mercy um, that is out there doing good work, invisible work that is not that we don't we don't get to talk about, um, seeking justice and mercy behind the scenes, and really doing that hard task of what the gospel calls us to. And it's the artists that that are imagining uh, what can be made out of scarcity, and they do not believe that uh, ultimately it's, a, it's just a Darwinian struggle to survive. And, the, you know, I don't have to really convince anybody <laughs> bec um, who, uh, who doubts this because I, when I, whenever I lecture, and, and right now, you know, it's on Zoom, but uh, there's always somebody who gets in the line um, to talk to me afterwards and uh, um, it inevitably that person starts out I am not an artist but and I know what's coming next I know that there's a father uh, whose daughter is a dancer and who uh, left home to go to Greenwich Village and um, she is far away from God but um, this person takes care to let me know how great creative amazing uh, dancer and uh, imaginator that this this daughter is and and I, I I say to that person you know you may not understand uh, the role of the arts or you may have maybe you know said that that that's not important but here we are you know talking about um, someone that you love um, who came out of your home who is sacrificing almost everything um, to in order to create uh, create something out of nothing something out of something to believe in the new creation and and we we have to understand that God is behind that too you know her choices may not reflect um, what we deem to be normative Christian practice um, and we, we can talk about that too but that that's that's not um, what I see, I, what I see first um, is that she is a maker, um, that she is a dancer, um, and she can do things um, that can attain the heights that uh, very few of us can. 
And to me, that's a sign of new creation. Um, and if I ever get to talk to her, which uh, I often end up doing because they send me emails <laughs> connecting us to uh, these children of the church um, who have left the church um, uh, in the arts, and um, I talk to them um, about the miraculous. I talk to them about Jesus who gives us wings, and um, I, I ask them about their journey of brokenness and and reality that they can be utterly honest with me and 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 we got to pray about that so um i i don't have to really convince anybody it's 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 already um in 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 our journeys and um um and there there's always um the, the you know the holy spirit always seems to um be biased toward makers. Um, and I've experienced and encountered the Spirit's work in lives of people who have rejected the church, who have, you know, been, um, have gone far away from uh, the, the church's teachings. Um, but I often meet uh, God, I, I often have experienced God's presence there. So we have a sort of preferential option for the artists, maybe. In the <laughs> yeah, because God is an artist. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of your work obviously is informed by these biblical and, and theological themes, and your imagination just so richly evokes so much of this. Uh, I think, of course, of you know the stunning four Gospels series that uh, were commissioned for the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. Or uh, one of my new favorites, which is, I have a print of it hanging on my living room wall now, uh, from the Walking on Water series, which references both the tragic 2011 tsunami in Japan, as well as the gospel story of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And it seems that uh, most, if not all, your work is tinged with an awareness of transcendence. But when you're working explicitly with biblical, or religious stories or images, do you think of your art any differently? Uh, and maybe another way to put this question a little more directly is, do you have any secular art? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Yale Press, um, which I suppose is a secular press, I, I don't know where the distinctions uh, are drawn. So I often uh, don't speak of them as sacred or, or secular, but um, they chose Walking Water as, as the cover of this book. Um, and they actually chose the title Art and Faith, Art Plus Faith, actually, is the design element there. Beautifully designed. Um, and obviously, design matters to me. And when I sold the cover, um, I have seen it in, uh, obviously, um, PDF, but not not in reality. And, and when I touched the cover uh, for the first time, I, I was very moved by it because I think they captured something about my faith that, um, frankly, a lot of the, even the best Christian publishers, um, you know, and, and, and I, I have no qualms about the people that I've worked with. I worked with some of the best and I'm very proud of the covers and uh for holy gospels project um uh, in fact those those seem to be exceptions but on and on the whole when you look at design book design um you know you you kind of think about well is this glorifying god um or is it a, is it a, just a market you know tool uh to sell the book and um the very few times when i see a cover design um, that, that I'm really moved by. Uh, most of the time it's in Japan, but, um, you know, so I, I, I say all that because I think um, a lot of times religion and, you know, what is known as secular is, is bifurcated. And, and I think it's a false dichotomy. Um, I, I, the, I, the, you know, Holy Spirit, um, um, it works with it, it doesn't read labels you know <laughs> uh, just because you put the label this is a Christian uh, plumbing company it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is going <laughs> to honor that <laughs> you have to be 
you have to be good, you know, and you have to be hospitable. You have to love people even beyond your job and you have to serve and you have to be good. You have to be really good as a plumber. And, and then people see God in you and in what you do. And, and so um, as there's secular art, um, it seems very clear in the Bible that uh, if you look at Isaiah 60 uh, on the ship of Tarshish, there are many secular kings on that ship carrying their treasures into New Jerusalem. <laughs> So it seems like God has an upper hand on this and it it chooses uh, people outside of the normative religious practice to uh, enter into New Jerusalem. Um, There's mystery in that, and I'm I'm not saying everything that human beings do uh, glorifies God. Not at all. Uh, Most of it turns into idols, turns into uh, something that uh, can, uh, does not endure. Um, but, um, you know, what, what God actively does is to turn even those things and twist them back into a purified way of expressing that turns into um, glorifying God's um, presence in, in our broken lives. Related to the issue of the sacred in art, I'm curious about your own process of making it. So it's your life's work. I assume you're you're making art on a near daily basis. How do you preserve the sacredness or the specialness of creating art day in, day out? That's one question. And then also related to this, how does this process of, of creating art inform your own spiritual disciplines or practices? Yeah, um, I've always felt the pleasure of God in making art. Um, Even as a young child, I didn't know what to call that. And I thought everybody had this experience. You know, I felt something going through me. Um, It was not mine, um, but I was um, able to, uh, as a vessel, um, experience that reality going through me. and, and, And what came out was just um, this delightful, innocent uh, strokes uh, of color and uh, movements. And um, and I have a painting that I did when I was three that my mother kept and framed and gave it back to me for my college graduation. <laughs> and I look at that painting every day because um, I, I have no ego in this painting. And, and it's, it's just so beautiful and free and um i i remind myself that you know my job is to have that naive confidence and um, even have sophisticated naivete perhaps that allows me to um, search for that every day and uh, i think that's where sacredness comes in kicks in is in your first love and um, whatever uh, brought you to the point of excellence. Um, there was that moment when you were a child or whenever that you aspire to be the best at what you can be. And um, that is um, that that is the sacred world, work, uh, sacred call is to um, be able to uh, refine what you do uh, and and to come up with something that's unique and only something that you can do. And, and then you offer that back to the world. Um, but, but also knowing that this is a, this is a gift. Uh, you don't own this um, and you, you, uh, you are able to freely give it away in that sense because it is, it is something that, um, you know, um, you um, are doing in gratitude. Now, having all said all that i mean there's nothing wrong with marketing your pieces or commoditizing your pieces it's just that when you lose that first love um it becomes only transactional and empty and uh you you can gain the whole world and forfeit your soul that way so artists know that very well and um they 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 are very good at even uh identifying when when that shift has taken place from art there are being that gift and becoming only transactional 
because you can sense in your soul that something is uh, just died, <laughs> and and so um, it, it's it's good to know people like this, right? To be able to uh, have uh, that high level of um, awareness about what they do. The poetry of T.S. Eliot is is obviously very important to you. He shows up throughout a lot of your writing over the years. And uh, in fact, one of the fondest memories I have over the past few years was attending an art show and a a poetry reading in which you read aloud from Eliot's The Four Quartets. Uh, And East Coker, which is the second in the set of poems, is a personal favorite of mine. And in this new book, you quote from Eliot and East Coker. uh, And the line is, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. And from this line, you then go on to talk about the theological significance of patience, longing, and even incompletion, all tied up with the significance of Holy Saturday in the liturgical calendar. It's very rich, deep, complicated stuff. And it was extremely moving for me, honestly, to to read at the end of what's been, I know not just for me, but for many, a very challenging and sometimes dark year. So how does your experience of art and your own process of art making help you develop the virtue of patience and hope in difficult times? Hmm. I began to encounter T.S. Eliot. I've known about him, obviously, and read his works before 9-11, but it was after 9-11 in the dark days um, ensuing um, I remember reading Four Quartets out loud in the subway um, in New York City, and nobody cared. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like it's, it's so wonderful to uh, live in in the city and and to um, to be reading Eliot um, and New York Times. On the other hand, you know, and and then realizing that then maybe Jeremiah, you know, the, carrying the Bible and and realizing that the chasm of history has just collapsed in front of you. And you you are entering a terrain that you don't know how to navigate. Uh, you, you are not only lost, but um, you're blinded by even what you see. And Eliot's voice, um, as haunting as that may be, of waiting without hope, uh, East Coker begins with, oh, dark, 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 we all go into the dark. And that, you know, perhaps, you know, later on after, and I, I found those passages um, really illuminating and, and even uh, even encouraging. And I, uh, was, you know, five years later, I'm doing this project with my friend, uh, artist Bruce Herman, who had been kind of a sort of a guide to me of Eliot's uh, writings. And I read those East Coker passages and I said, oh my goodness, this is like the most depressing <laughs> poetry ever written. You know, why did it, why did I find it so comforting? And I thought about that and I thought, well, I, I found the comforting because it was a human voice affirming my own inner darkness and 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 just the loss of hope and despair that I was carrying every day, trying to do my best, you know, as a father and as a leader, um, trying to um, impart hope um, and going into the studio and working, even though there was no exhibit or um, you know, nothing to hope for, really. But, um, but you know, I, I think I heard a human voice affirming uh, that uh, as if Elliot was saying to me, I know how you feel. I was there, you know. And I know that darkness that envelops you and you cannot shake that darkness. So I'm going to um, write uh, acknowledging that and and whatever you can grasp onto uh, the reality of that place um, it will be elevated because we have just shared in uh, communion together and we uh, you are not alone 
um, so many writers, and and of course, Eliot was looking to Beethoven's um, last quartets, and uh, Virgil and Dante, who was his guide <laughs> through his darkness, um, being an air warden uh, and and experiencing trauma himself and breakdown of marriage and. Uh, and so uh, he he understood what that meant, um, and, and and was um, acquainted with grief as as uh, a savior uh, for Eliot. That was a journey of faith into faith, by acknowledging those things and finding hope uh, in in the savior once again. Um, so Foucault's came out of that journey, and you can trace that journey uh, in his heart. And and for me. Um, it was a kind of a reversal of um, being feeding without hope uh, many times, um, uh, certainly after 9/11, but but also recent times, and and then and then realizing that uh, this is a common journey as well, um, and we get to um, partake in in a journey that you didn't want to, but you are nevertheless walking into. And um, once I began to trust uh, my intuition um, that even though I feel blinded by this, um, I can still see with the eyes of my heart. And uh, Eliot's language, um, Rothko's paintings, so many of the examples that I talk about in this book um, can can allow me to um, to create uh, out of and and even beyond them um, some something new into the world. And if I can do that, then that will be passed on. It's a torch passed on to the next generation and generation beyond. Uh, so that they can stand witness uh, to the chasm of uh, t- time collapsing in front of you and and be able to um, somehow uh, wake up the next day um, and perhaps not finding hope yet, but being able to go to their studios and face their writing desks and stages and and begin to work again, uh, to make again. Um, and if we can do that... Um, you know, I think uh, we're going to be okay. Let's stay in the darkness for one more question. Yeah. Toward the end of your book, you describe an encounter with a friend of yours who renewed her childhood faith after a period of uncertainty and dormancy, you might say. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the striking prayer that she offered one morning over breakfast with you. Lord, use this food, this breakfast, to prepare us for our deaths. (laughs) So... (laughs) When I read that, I literally, I had to stop for a second as, as I'm, I'm guessing maybe you did in the actual moment because I, I realized I had never heard a prayer like that before and certainly not in such a common mundane setting as breakfast rather than say a funeral. But this is actually such a crucial part of the Christian tradition, not to mention the Jewish tradition or, or even ancient Greek philosophy. The idea that living the good life ultimately is preparing us for a good death. How does this reminder, this uh, in the old Latin phrase, this memento mori, inform your own spirituality and your own work? Yeah, um, yeah, I was astonished. Uh, here we are, uh, you know, in in our 2020 Advent season, um, season of waiting and season of reflecting, and um, it naturally leads to Lenten season as well and Holy Saturday and all, all that we talked about. But Melissa, yeah, she uh, she uttered that prayer without any kind of, you know, she wasn't trying to prove it. Later on, I asked her about it and she said, well, I just um, stood uh, witness to my grandmother passing and a uh, godly woman who... Um, uh, was um, uh, able to be received into the arms of God. And um, I've been thinking about that. And I think that morning, you know, that just came out of her uh, being being a wonderful writer that she is. And, um, yeah, that, that took hold of my heart. Uh, and, and, and when I was writing this book, I, I remember that and just asked her permission to uh, include it because it, it, it became um, 
some something of a journey uh, as as we noted into silence and darkness that um, we don't have the way to handle in our at least in the American culture uh, we, we don't have too many examples of ways to deal with uh, trauma um, and we're gonna need that you know and we need the blues you know um, because they recognize that things are not right and uh, there's oppression and there's there's um, uh, power struggles that lead to marginalization of those who cannot uh, defend themselves. And uh, it, life is unfair and uh, unjust. And, um, and, and yet, you know, should we just resign ourselves then to um, that's, just say that's the way things are? Or is there another way to recalibrate our, our hope and, and to understand the darkness as, as a way to uh, share uh, with each other uh, something much richer and deeper. And so I think in order to understand hope, we have to understand that reality of our limitedness. And uh, again, going back to God's abundance, we are very limited in how we can respond. And, and yet, you know, all God asks us is to break bread and to uh, take that wine cup uh, given to us in communion and take a sip. Um, and I mentioned this in the book, how both of these elements that we consider to be essential in, in Eucharistic service are uh, um, creations, the making of uh, that we must do with our hands. Uh, and, and second of all, it must be done um, with many, many hours of failing to create anything edible or anything drinkable. Uh, it, it requires, uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours of excellence to, to be able to create wine and create bread. And, um, and God said, you know, until you do that, that I'm not going to show up, you know, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to wait until you become good at making wine. <laughs> So you can have this Eucharistic communion with me. And that, that says a lot about how much emphasis God places on making and how grape must be trampled on and, and, and basically die to sacrifice, to give life to, to us. And, and that's happening, you know, um, every day. Uh, in our meals. So Melissa was right. I, I think this is about um, us preparing our hearts for that good death. Um, and we need to be aware of that. Um, and especially as we enter into the, you know, as we are going through the Advent season now and, you know, into Lenten uh, season, I think, you know, Christ's tears um, and um, reality of new creation breaks in when we uh, acknowledge that. So one last question. If you could recommend just two or three beautiful things for our listeners to experience, and this could be poetry, art, music, novels, even maybe food or recreation, what would they be? What would these two or three things be? Well, I think beauty is everywhere around us. Um, you know, Calvin Silverville said that there are burning bushes everywhere. Uh, we just stopped taking our shoes off. Oh, um, and, you know, right now in Princeton, the sun is setting and uh, here at my farm, uh, there's not a day where uh, the horizon is not beautiful. <laughs> Even on the most cold, dreary days, um, I look at the horizon and I, I find beauty there. And so I think it's everywhere. And, you know, this time of shutdown, you know, we struggle so much with not being able to do things, but, you know, what a gift it has been to slow down and to um, really, if you wanted to uh, be in touch with um, minute particulars of, of the creation around us, uh, glorious creation um, that is, um, 
profound and um, there are things going on uh, underneath the earth uh, in front of me that is, um, as, it would astonish us if we knew what was going on, right? Uh, um, you know, all, all the microbes and insects and uh, roots of tulips taking, um, digging in uh, because it's cold and the ground is frozen. Those are things we don't see in the winter. Um, things that are covered over um, and we think nothing is happening. Um, there's so much that is going on because um, we have been shut down and dormant perhaps and uh, unable to do things that we want to do. Um, and the, so the, I, I would say the most beautiful things are inside of you uh, and me, uh, and that is uh, roots that are spreading uh, because um, we have been forced to slow down, um, to reconsider uh, expectations and what we um, desire to accomplish, uh, to value uh, you know, your loved ones, to be able to give grace to even the fractures uh, that we experience. Uh, th those anybody can do at any moment. And, and when we do that, 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 it, that is the, certainly the reflection of God's art in us. But uh, who knows, it may turn into um, uh, a way that we can create into the new uh, something beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Mako, for this. This has been just truly a, a delight to, to hear you talk about these things and to reflect on things that we ought to find beautiful that ought to arrest our attention. I, I want to recommend to our readers uh, one more time to check out your new book, Art and Faith, A Theology of Making, published by Yale University Press. Uh, I think it probably um, more nearly is a great advent than a great Christmas present, but for either occasion, I think it would be a great purchase. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Davey. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Call in Character, a podcast from the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. If you have any feedback or questions, follow us on the Institute's Facebook page or send an email to lead.serve at valpo.edu. Our production team includes Aaron Morrison and Kim Neiman. Please subscribe to Call in Character on iTunes, Spotify, and other places podcasts are found, and leave us a comment and a rating. Until next time. <laughs>